0: Please uh, join me in taking out your Bibles and turning with me to Psalm chapter 15. We earlier sang a hymn based on it, and we just sang the psalm itself uh, from the Trinity Psalter. And now we're going to explore in a bit more detail uh, Psalm chapter 15. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him in prayer and ask for His help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to see the truth and beauty of your word. Would you open our ears to hear the truth and beauty of your word? Open our minds to know, open our hearts to embrace, and finally, Father, would you strengthen our hands and feet to do what you ask us to do? Oh, Father, may your word before us be our rule, may your Holy Spirit be our teacher, and may your... Greater glory be our supreme concern, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we are in, I guess, week three of our ongoing uh, annual summer psalm series, Seeing All of Life as Worship through the Psalms. And uh, one of the uh, benefits, of course, of consecutive preaching, say, through the Gospels or through a letter, is you got to be able to understand things in context, Okay. But here, the interesting thing is uh, with 150 Psalms, uh, five books, uh, you go from one Psalm to the other and you're like, whoa, how is it related? And, and, and what's, what's good about a series through the Psalms is you don't get to go Psalm 1, Psalm 23, Psalm 100, Psalm 139, Psalm 150. No, we are going to work our way through all the Psalms because we really do believe what God's Word says about itself, that it's light. To our, A lamp to our feet and, and a light to our path as we journey home. Um, you've been hearing over the last few weeks that uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, referred to the Psalms as the Bible in miniature. He saw that all of scripture could kind of be comprehended in the Psalms. And John Calvin, another one of the great reformers, called the Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Well, today we're going to look more at the anatomy side of the Bible, uh, of the Psalms. Uh, Indeed, the Psalms serve to open us up to see what's on the inside. Indeed, as we read, as the Lord shows uh, David, and we read in 1 Samuel chapter 16, that man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God's Word in general, and the Psalms in particular, serve to, I believe, enable us to look at our hearts. You know, morbid introspection is bad, right? You know what it's like to to just be consumed with yourself, looking inward at how you're terrible and you're failing and no good. And and, and there's a, a bad part of introspection, but certainly the scriptures invite us to a healthy kind of introspection, and that's what we will be doing today. Well, you see the title of the sermon, A Spiritual CT Scan, CT, Computed Tomography, also known as a CAT scan, Computerized Axial Tomography, developed in the early 1970s, uh, where x-ray and computer technology are brought together and used to provide imaging for medical personnel so that doctors can diagnose and then come up with a treatment plan. And and also to guide the, the surgeons in surgery with a 2D or a 3D image of, of the organ or the, the tumor or what have you. We, just like doctors, need to see what's on the inside. We need to see what's happening on the inside. And I believe, as we will see, Psalm 15 will serve for all of us as kind of a spiritual CT scan. The Psalms are songs, 150 hymns and prayers that Israel has used from the beginning to to go before the Lord and worship. And they're, they're they're at the same time both familiar to us, comforting to us, but they're foreign to us. Because they're written over a period of 12 centuries from the 15th century to the 3rd century B.C. They are diverse there's 150 of them. They are unified because they are centered on the one true and living God and they express that mysterious divine human encounter. And as I've been reminding all of us and children in particular, the Psalms look different than the Gospel of Mark. The Psalms look different than the letter to the Galatians. They, they are poetry. And as poetry, they tell us to slow down when we read. And as they do that, they inform our intellect, they arouse our emotions, they direct our wills, and they stimulate our imaginations. And when we read the Psalms, just like we read any of God's Word with faith, we come away not just informed, but also transformed as the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and works on us. I've been saying that the church doesn't need exclusive psalmody, but oh, do we need inclusive psalmody. And the psalms help us because true worship is biblically grounded and guided. It's God-focused, it's Christ-centered, it's spirit-enabled. And the psalms here promote not just corporate worship on the Lord's Day, but they promote all-of-life worship. So where are you today today? In your life, in your walk. Are you, are you um, is your tank, as Eric prayed, on empty? Then refuel here. Are you lost? Are you wandering? Then, then you will be, God's word will help you find your way and return. Are you scattered? Are your thoughts scattered? Even right now, right this second, are your thoughts scattered? The Psalms will help us refocus Because worship changes us from who we were at one time to who we are becoming and what we will be one day. Corporate worship on the Lord's Day, as I've been saying and I'm reminding myself and all of us, it reorients us and it realigns us. What do I mean by reorientation? In the case of false gods, to move from unbeliever to believer, to get eyes and hearts off of false gods and on to the one true and living God and remember the prayer and the statement I believe help my unbelief there's a little bit of unbeliever in all of us and so the psalms and worship help to reorient us but they help to realign us as well because we have a tendency to worship the true God in a false way, in a way that's not pleasing to him. And so for the growing and maturing believer, the Psalms in particular help to realign us. Join with me now as I read these five verses known as Psalm chapter 15, a Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly? And does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved." What we have before us is a straightforward structure. A question, an answer, and a promise. Now, although straightforward, we will see that there is a depth of meaning and there is a wideness of application. In view of acknowledging that the Scriptures principally teach what we, be, what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us, let's unpack and explore this portion of God's Word. First, verse 1, a question is asked. For those of you who may be familiar with the Psalms, if you turn over to Psalm chapter 24 and you look at verses 3 through 5, you're like, wow, it's pretty much saying the same thing. Chapter 24, verses 3 through 5. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And as we've seen, it's also similar to a portion of Isaiah. Isaiah 33. Let's remember first the historical situation. A psalm of David. David the king. Remember, David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem after Jerusalem is conquered. The Ark of the Covenant has been in a tent. And it's been uh, with God's people through the wilderness wanderings. And it's, and it's finally in the promised land. And what does David do? He sets it up on a hill. And David... Um, Wants to not just set it up on a hill, but he remarks to the prophet Nathan that, "Hey, I'm living in a palace, but how is it that the 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 God's uh, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is is in a tent? We we need to build a temple." And David, or excuse me, Nathan initially says, "Yeah, that's what you should do." But then the Lord reveals to Nathan, "No, it's, and to David, nah, it's not going to be you, David. It's going to be your son Solomon who builds the temple." So David has conquered Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant, the, the, where the Ten Commandments and other uh, symbols of, of um, God's special relationship with His people are kept. It's, it's there in Jerusalem. It's on the hill. Now, notice these words, uh, sojourn in your tent and dwell on your holy hill. Uh, this historical situation of wilderness wandering into the Promised Land, I believe, helps us to see the movement from the temporary to the permanent, the movement from the temporary—you think tent dwelling on your holy hill—you think permanent. Um, I remember being in the military, uh, the Navy in particular, uh, for a number of years, and and uh, we would get what we called TAD orders. Uh, the Army called them TDY orders. You know, you got to have different acronyms. Uh, TAD, temporary additional duty. Uh, you knew that um, it wasn't going to last forever. It was uh, for a week or six weeks or or three months. It was temporary additional duty. But what you also knew is every 18 months on the short end, every five years on the long end, you would have a PCS move, a permanent change of station move. And that's kind of what's happening here. The, The Israelites, as they wandered through the wilderness, were on a series of TAD or TDY orders. And finally, when they're in the promised land, it's a permanent change of station. They are, they are getting settled in the promised land. And David rightly wants to, to, to uh, have the ark leave the tent and be established in a temple, which of course it one day will. Notice verse 1 is a question. And sometimes just asking the question brings you to the answer. The importance of asking and not ignoring good questions. Remember from the book of Acts. Just listen to these questions from the book of Acts. Brothers, what shall we do? At the end of Peter's sermon on Pentecost. Brothers, what shall we do? A great question, right? Later, uh... In chapter 16, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Great question that the jailer asked. What must I do to be saved? Um, in, in chapter uh, uh, 9, remember Paul's conversion experience. He meets the risen Lord on the way to Damascus. And what does he say? Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Indeed, in the Visitor's Welcome and Information uh, book, I've got a small evangelistic tract called Ultimate Questions. Ultimate Questions because all of us, the society around us, are really good at not wanting to ask questions. What do they say? Curiosity killed the cat, right? right? But there is a healthy curiosity, isn't there? What must we do? How must I how can I be saved? Who are you, Lord? Uh, listen to this question. Oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? It's the question of communion and fellowship with God. It's the end to which mankind was made. Think of Adam and Eve before the fall in the garden. What? They are in Communion and fellowship with God, they as the old song, they walked with God and they talked with God. There's a unity, there is a sweetness of the relationship and fellowship. Of course, before everything goes south, before the fall, before the entrance of sin. Communion and fellowship with God is at the heart of the overall covenant promise. We see it early on in in. in Genesis but mainly in Exodus and beyond I will be your God and you will be my people and indeed we see that's how the book of Revelation ends up as well God declaring that I will be your God and you will be my people now before we move on to the rest of the verses I want us to uh, notice this and this is incredibly important to whom is the question being asked To whom is the question being asked? O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? You know, sometimes what goes without saying should be said. And here is a time right now. You're not asking the pastor of the church. It's not what you might think no we're, we're asking the Lord who can be in fellowship with you who can be in a right relationship with you yes there's the images of the tent and the dwelling and the sojourning and the kind of the permanent residence but it's all about being in a relationship with the Lord because you see God is the one that establishes the terms of our relationship It's what God declares about himself. You know, human nature, human sinful nature is inherently religious, isn't it? We're always coming up with something, someone to to follow, something to believe, right? Uh, Everybody believes something or someone. Everybody worships something or someone. Here, God is the one answering the question because our personal taste and the cultural fads of the moment are irrelevant. They're irrelevant. What is relevant is what God says. And here, David is doing the right thing. He's asking the Lord. Lord, who can be in a right relationship with you? Lord, who can be in fellowship with you? Lord, who can be, who can be your friend? And the Lord gives the answer. And so let's move on to the answer that God gives to the question that David asks. Now you see, uh, beginning in verse two, all the way down to almost the end of verse five is, or several verses. And what you may see is an attempt to put them in kind of a poetical form. And if you go back to the original language to the Hebrew, what you see here is six lines of poetry that are grouped in, in pairs. Uh, they're couplets. And, and for those of you who may be familiar with Hebrew poetry, there's a parallelism in which the second part of the couplet uh, sometimes, most often, repeats but expands. Um, it, 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 it pushes forward what was said at the beginning. And so what we have before us are six uh, lines of poetry, and they're all um, couplets. And I'm going to um, go through them rather quickly, um, and I've hopefully come up with some names that can... Then help us remember. But what you have, and I'll just repeat it. I'll, I'll say it right up front, and then we'll we'll work our way back. Is uh, the walk, the talk, the relationships, the companions, the commitments, and the cash? The walk, the talk, the relationships, the command companions, the commitments, and the cash. Look, first of all, at verse two, uh, the, ver- uh, the first um, couple of lines that you see in the Bible. He, what's the answer? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. That's the answer. That's the end of the psalm, so to speak. It's a general principle, it's the category of character. Uh, Turn back with me to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1, where the psalms begin. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You go back to verse 5. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish If you could go forward to Psalm 119, the longest psalm, which speaks clearly and uh, very uh, detailed about the Word of God. Psalm 119 starts like this. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in His ways. The walk, it's the manner of life, it's, 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 your, it's your life, it's your walk, it's how you live. And here again, it's the general principle. This, this man walks blamelessly and does what is right. He, he doesn't do what is wrong, he, there's no blame, he, he does what is right. And what follows is a comprehensive list. It's not exhaustive, but it's representative because... In particular, this man not only walks, but he talks. Look at the rest of verse 2 into verse 3. And speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue. Your talk, what you say, reveals what's in your heart. Jesus makes that clear. It's out of the heart of a man that the, that the mouth speaks. James Speaks of the smallness, yet the great power of of the tongue. Here in this in this reference to speaking truth in your heart, um, does not slander with your tongue. Here here is the ninth commandment against bearing false witness. And as we've been seeing in that exposition through the shorter catechism, helpfully our catechism says what is required and what is. Forbidden. What is required is speaking truth, what is forbidden is speaking falsehood, to put it very simply. So the walk is the general manner of life, and here's a specific thing, your talk, your speech. But then notice as it continues in verse 3, And does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. You would think in this psalm there's going to be something about worship, about prayer. But no, what does it talk about? How to treat other people, your relationships. It's about loving your neighbor, how we treat those around us. Relationships. You know, Calvin, and I can't remember where he writes. It's probably in the Institutes. I mean, you can track everything back to the Institutes. He speaks of man is very good at external religiosity. Man is very good at um, putting on a show. But you know what's really hard is to put on a show in relationships, isn't it? You want to know who we really are? Ask a good friend of ours. Ask our spouse. Ask our child. Who are we? We're really known in relationships with one another. And here, the psalmist David is providing God's, the answer that God gives. This person is, is righteous and blameless in how he treats someone else. As we move forward into verse 4, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. What? Aha, contradiction in Scripture, conflict between the Word of God. We are told what? To despise? I thought we were just to speak truthfully and kindly, and now we are to despise a vile person, but yet honor those who fear the Lord. Well, what is going on here? I believe the question is this. Whose company do you keep? Because the vile person that David is referring to, the Lord is referring to, is, is not the pagan Gentile. The vile person is the member of the covenant community who basically isn't keeping the covenant. Who's walking away from the faith. Who's denying the Lord. And Paul picks up that in Corinthians and elsewhere as to what to do with a professing believer. At some point, you don't associate with them. At some point, you may have to exercise church discipline to excommunicate them. Why? To maintain the honor and glory of Christ, to protect the church, but also to, by God's grace, bring them to repentance. So here in the companions, it's to, uh, to not... Be attracted to, not keep company with that or those who are vile, but yet to honor those who fear the Lord. You know, I was um, meeting with someone years ago and they were sharing an experience about them meeting with a, a, a man who I believe had some kind of handicap. He, he might have stuttered. He might have um, had trouble walking. I'm not sure what the case was. But this man loved the Lord it was clear that this man loved the Lord, and my friend loved to be with that man. Why? Because he wanted to encourage him in the faith, and he wanted himself to be encouraged as well. That's what it's talking about. Not being attracted to that which is vile, to those who are vile, but rather being attracted, wanting to be alongside and with those who love the Lord. So we've seen the walk, Overall, but the talk and the relationships and the companions. But we move now at the end of verse 4 to the commitments. This person who who, uh, walks blamelessly and does what is right does it in the area of commitments, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. There's an integrity, a faithfulness. Earlier it was the ninth commandment about... um, uh, Bearing false witness. And here you could see the seventh commandment of adultery. Being faithful to vows. You know, I've been thinking a lot about wedding vows. Richer, poor, better, worse, sickness, and health. You know, it's easy to be married, isn't it? In the health, in the better, in the wealth, isn't it? It's hard, it's difficult in the sickness, in the poor, in the worse But the man or the woman who's made those vows sticks with it. Why? Because it's honoring to God. And God will give the strength to keep going. Have you all ever made a promise and you were reaping advantages and benefits, right? But then you've made a promise and those advantages now are not so advantageous and the benefits are really turning into cost. What do you do? Do you look for a way out of the promise? Do you you look for a way out? Or do you look to the Lord and ask for help, for grace to keep it? And this is the blameless man. This is the the one who does what is right. And finally, we see in verse 5, one who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Cash, money, financial. Here is the, is the statement against um, people who gain for themselves at the expense of others. We don't have the time and it's not the purpose to go into the biblical basis for lending and interest or no interest. The bottom line is, this righteous man, this blameless man, is not abusing the system for his benefit and hurting other people. He's righteous. He's blameless. Now, this is a comprehensive list talk, relationships, companions, commitments, and cash. It's it's comprehensive, it's not exhaustive, but it's representative. And all of these either align with or go against the character of God that David would know and God's people would know. Because you see, before us is the man of integrity. His character is true, his words when spoken are restrained, his allegiance is clear cut, his dealings are honorable. The answer that God gives to the question that David asks serves as a spiritual CT scan. And this CT scan does two things simultaneously. That is, at the same time. First, it reveals sin. Going through this list reveals sin in you and in me. And it reveals sin because it also reveals righteousness it's a picture of a spiritually healthy soul this ct scan has got two images going one is an image of a spiritually sick or sinful soul and the other image is the spiritually healthy soul Now, from what we've done thus far, ask yourself this question. If these are the standards, if these are the requirements that God has set for someone to sojourn in his tent, to dwell on his holy hill, in other words, to be in fellowship with him, if these are the standards and these are the requirements, have you met them? How confident are you in meeting the standard? Well, let me ask you this. My guess is all of us, um, in fact, it's not a guess, it's accurate knowledge, we're all far below the standard. We're all not meeting the requirement. Now, so is it a matter then of trying harder, trying to be better? I mean, that could be a response, right? I don't meet the standard. I don't meet the requirements, so I'll just try harder. I'll work harder. Well, just a little while ago in Galatians, we read this. Chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The two images reveal sin sin. Reveals righteousness. And in so doing, of course, the answer that God gives David points forward to Christ. And the Psalms all lean forward to Christ. First, by showing us the blameless and righteous character of Christ. Uh, Think about going through the Gospel of Mark with me. Uh, Look at Jesus, his manner of life, the words he spoke. The precise words that cut to the heart of someone's sin. The precise words that that tenderly reached out to someone in need. Think about Jesus' relationships with others. Think about who He kept companionship with. Now, Jesus ate and dined and was in the home of sinners. Amen. Absolutely. But notice... He was not attracted to them to imitate their manner of life. No, He was attracted to them because He wanted to give His life. Think about His commitments. Think about the commitment all the way to the cross, even when it was costly. Think about Jesus not gaining for Himself at the expense of others. So first, the Psalms, this answer shows us the blameless and righteous character of Christ, but second, by showing us that someone, someone else, someone had to take the curse that we deserve in order to get the blessing that God has promised to Abraham. Because you see, further in Galatians, we read this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, for our sake God the Father made Jesus the Son to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become what? The righteousness of God. It's the great exchange. It's our sin for His righteousness. And we see that here in Psalm 15. After this comprehensive answer is given, notice how the psalm ends with a promise that is made. A glorious promise Here is a point of reassurance. Those who walk, talk, and relate like this, in this way, will dwell and rest safe and secure. When? Both now and in the judgment to come. Because things really will be shaken. Things really will move upon Christ's return. But he who does these things shall never be moved. Some translations, shall never be shaken. Here is a promise that falls under the great promise that God has made. I will be your God and you will be my people. The one who does these things will never be moved. Never be shaken. Now, children, how is the Bible uh, summarized? The Old Testament is what? Promises. Made. And what's the New Testament? Promises kept. So let's look again to a promise made. Let's go back to the questions I asked a few minutes ago. Do we meet the requirements? No. None of us meets the requirements. Go back to Psalm 14 last week. Remember where we were? They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one Psalm 15 is not our resume. We may think we are better than someone else, but we are not better before the Lord. This promise made says that the one who does these things will never be moved, will never be shaken. And yet, we see in this psalm the radical nature of Christian obedience. The disciples ask a great question. Who then can be saved? And what is Jesus' response? With man, it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. It's a promise made. Do these things and you'll not be moved. You'll not be shaken. But it's a promise kept. It's first of all a promise kept to Christ and then to us if we are united to Him by faith. A few weeks ago was Ascension Sunday. And historically the church, especially the, uh, the church has used this on Ascension Sunday as Jesus Himself ascended to the holy hill of God. Dwelling on God's holy mountain. I want you to go with me back to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In Psalm 2, God is not asking who will be dwelling on His holy mountain. He is declaring who he himself has set there, a man whom the New Testament identifies as Christ himself. So who dwells on God's holy hill? Who? Jesus Christ. In both Boy Scouts growing up and in youth fellowship at church, uh, we both met at the church building uh, growing up in our hometown and there was, uh, right outside the church door was a hill, okay, a hill. And you know what game we played every time? King of the hill, right? You remember getting thrown off the hill, right? Yeah, thrown down off the hill. And, and to be king of the hill, oh, until somebody else bigger, stronger, faster got up there, right, and threw you down. Well, my friends, the good news is Jesus is king of Of the hill. Because he did indeed walk that road uphill to Calvary, gave his life for us. Jesus is king of the hill, and he brings all of those united to him by faith with him. And as king, he does what? Subdues us, he defends us against all his and our enemies. The book of Revelation toward the end and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. My friends this psalm is good news for one commentator says this. The qualities the psalm describes are those that God creates in a man not those he finds in him. Oh, he found them in one man, the God-man, the one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. But these qualities are not something that God finds in us, and because he finds in us, he accepts us. No, these are the ones he creates in us after the king of the hill has already grabbed us and brought us up with him safe and securely. So we've seen a question, an answer, and a promise. However, by now, you should have already come to the conclusion that the indefinite pronouns should be changed to definite pronouns. This is the question, this is the answer, and this is the promise. So what do we do with this psalm? It's another question that needs to be asked and answered right here. Right now. What do we do with this psalm? Well. It's a call to repent. And to believe. Remember the words of Jesus in Mark 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What does it mean to repent? What does it mean to believe? Good questions. And I want to go and provide a brief answer from our catechism. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace. Whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin. and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. Doth with grief and hatred of his sin. Turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after. Ready? New obedience. New obedience. And what is faith? What is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered to us in the gospel. My friends, once again, Psalm 15 is a spiritual CT scan, and being so, it could be something that saves your life. As a mirror, Psalm 15 shows us a picture of ourselves. But as a window, Psalm 15 shows us a portrait of Christ, our Savior. Our something to think about quote is from John Newton, And here's something else Newton said. You've heard it before. We need to hear it again as we wrap up. When I was young, Newton writes, I was sure of many things. Now there are only two things of which I am sure. One is that I am a miserable sinner. And the other is that Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. He is well-taught who learns these two lessons. Oh, may God be pleased to make us a well-taught people who not only strive to get some kind of grade, in fact, not strive to get some kind of grade, but rather to actually rejoice in the life-giving truth of these two answers. And finally, let us be thankful that Psalm 15 made the cut and it's in the Bible. Indeed, since we are, as the writer to the Hebrew says, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us thus offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and all, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for not leaving us to find our way home, but you have given us the map your word, and you've given us the compass, your Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to use your word as a mirror that we could see ourselves for who we are and also as a window so that we could see our Savior. And, oh, Father, we thank you that this psalm is both a picture of our sinful selves, but it's also a picture of our sinless Savior. Father, may we find our rest and our hope and our confidence and our trust in him. For truly, nothing can separate us from the love that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we thank you that in Christ we will indeed not be moved or shaken. For we pray in his name. Amen.